podcast ain't played nobody. It's going to be a quick rant. It's going to be right up front, okay? Your social media, my social media, Bill's social media, it's all trash. All of it. It's all awful, okay? And by the way, I've set up an Instagram account specifically for SB Nation stuff. I know a lot of you have reached out to me to follow me on Instagram. I have, like, the private, hey, look, the kid's got ice cream on his face, and oh, the dog did something funny. And then I have just sort of the friend wall built into that. For privacy concerns, you can now follow me on Instagram at 38Godfrey. All social media is trash, Bill. It's awful. It is a Well, I thought that was the point of Instagram was to post pics of your kid. What am I it, supposed to be doing other than that? Uh, I, I'm, I'm just following some, some marketing initiative here. My point is this. <laughs> it's all garbage except for one thing. Okay? It's not the inspirational Instagram quotes. It's sure as hell not the terrible political things that your relatives mention on, on Facebook. It is Mike the Tiger. Everything else is garbage, okay? Because I have this centering moment. Usually in the mornings when I check the Instagram, I do it in 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 a knee-jerk, masturbatory fashion. It's it's become this terrible tick of, of checking Instagram too much. I have no idea why I don't follow that many people. But But you follow Mike me the, and I appreciate it. Sure. There's Mike the Tiger. And there's Mike the Tiger hanging out in his awesome habitat in Baton Rouge. And you know what? Whatever terrible ass day that you've had, whatever stupid trifling concern that we carry into our into our lives and our personal relationships in the short time that we orbit this rock, Mike's just hanging out because he's a tiger, okay? Do you remember, Bill? I take a lot of my, my proverbs and sort of my spiritual structure from, from Van Halen. And in Van Halen, there's a – do you remember the Right Now video? This has a point. Just wait. This has a point. I'm waiting. I'm it's waiting. A, you remember that awesome song Right Now, the Crystal Pepsi oh, yeah. song from the 90s? Half of our listenership, no idea because they were, like, just being born. It says well, right now are everything business. that's wrong with this world. Go ahead. Right now it says it's just business as usual in the woods, and it shows, it shows some bears eating some fish in the woods. And I call to mind the prophetic visual imagery created by one Sammy Hagar – because I hate this news that Mike the Tiger has cancer. Because what it means is that that zen-like moment for me and the nice bit of perspective we get in just seeing, hey, sports fandom is such that the taxpayers of a, a, a systemically broken state like Louisiana, they're going to spend millions of dollars to create a habitat on a college campus for a tiger because sports. And I have no, I have no qualm with that. But I hate that my buddy Mike is battling cancer. It's terrible. It's terrible. So this is the worst possible news um, in, in a sea of otherwise terrible news that you and I are equipped for, right? Progression of CTE, inequality of compensation in the sports, sexual assault, um, just you know, general corruption, corporate greed, you name it. We're, we're ready. We're, we're, we're steeled for that kind of information. I don't want to hear that Mike Tiger has cancer. So I just want to take this opportunity before we jump into the rest of the show. We have a packed show. Mike, get well soon. LSU, you have one of the best mascots in football. I've read that they're, they, are, they are doing some cutting-edge experimental stuff. I hope it works. I, um, occasionally within the, uh, the, the Missouri internet, it'll pop up, well, why don't we have a live tiger? Um, my, other than no, uh, Missouri's got enough issues already. Uh, my main, I think, uh, this, this reinforces my main, uh, reason for not wanting one. I don't want to get, uh, be really sad when it gets sick. 
that, that's pretty much there. There are enough live mascots already that make me sad. Uh, there, you know, a new Uga dies about every other year at this point. I wasn't, kind of, I, look, I am, I am as legitimately concerned as one can be to the point where I was not even going to make an Uga joke. That's how bad I feel about this. <laughs> well, but again, <laughs> but again, much like the ills of the sport, we are steeled and conditioned for Uga deaths. Okay. <laughs> Basically half a leap year now. We're losing an UGA. We're losing an UGA, we're, we're losing an, an UGA at, a, at a clip faster than the Olympic cycle. So we get used to it, right? If a seven-year-old lost his grand, his or her grandparent every three years, I mean, it'd be pretty jaded by the time they were a teenager. Thus is the way of losing UGA. Okay, um, <laughs> I'm not ready to lose Mike the Tiger. I even have. Let me let me say this because I. I went to a rival school, and I know tons of... This is, a unif- this is more of a unifying thing that people realize. We're, we've got so much to get to, but I'm, I'm going to leave you on this. I, I, know for, I have friends who went to rival universities. I know someone who works in, in the state government of a, of a state that, that rivals Louisiana and the SEC who once, during a LSU football game, tried to urinate into the, into the Tiger pen. This was pre-Mike. This was a, the, Mike's predecessor. And, and they are devastated about... Mike the Tiger, okay? It, it, it's beyond fandom. I think it's something you could separate from a college football rivalry. Tiger, get well soon. We love you. What are we going to talk about on the show? What aren't we going to talk about on the show? Right, seriously, let's just get rolling. Let's not even, let's not even foreshadow. Let's just get rolling right. with the next topic. Transition. Um, so in my show notes this week, as we're building minor, minor news items, we have, I think for the most part, applauded the, the scheduling of, of the Labor Day weekend opener. It's pretty nice. It's pretty spread out. I still feel like Houston and Oklahoma got screwed with an 11 a.m. kickoff for, for really kind of a watershed moment in Houston athletics. Oh, well. Can't complain when the major games are, are cross-network. Cross, like we're seeing media conglomerates that are normally rivals almost come to an understanding that the good football should not be congested into one time slot. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I have a question. I don't think you can answer it. I know I can't answer it. Uh, but I'm learning about it. I'm asking people in athletics about it. These, these games that arbitrarily move, to Thursday or Friday nights. Now, normally you see it at the CUSA. Normally you see it at the American Athletic Conference, and that's dictated by ESPN needing the inventory. Those games not surviving well on Saturdays in terms of ratings, the program's winning exposure. Tennessee and App State is moving to a Thursday in Knoxville, and I can't figure out why. Now, you're a guy who goes to Missouri games habitually. Mm-hmm. A Thursday game, granted, you live in the in the metroplex of your university town. Yeah. But a Thursday night game, just it, it wrecks – I mean, it really wrecks things for a lot of people. I live here in Nashville and overheard some Tennessee fans talking about this the other day. It goes from – if you're in a post-grad world, it's not the toughest thing. Maybe you call in sick on Friday. You get over there just in time for kickoff. But, you know, if you got kids, if you have, if you have obligations larger than just punching a clock, it becomes a nightmare if you, if you want to be there and have that experience. Now – if Knoxville's okay not being 100% full and kind of having a lackluster atmosphere, I get that. But I just don't understand why they moved this game. Also, yep. keep in mind, in the state of Tennessee, in the Southeastern Conference, on that night, South Carolina's playing Vanderbilt here in Nashville. No, I don't think that's necessarily a big competition. But, <clears throat> so, okay, I'm, I'm no, blanking. No, I'm sorry. I, did, I didn't mean competition in terms of, of local interest. I meant competition in terms of being on the television. Oh. Well, um, how far is it from Nashville to Knoxville on Blanken? 
Uh, it's about 185 miles. Okay, yeah, so even further. Like, that's – for Missouri on Thursday nights, like, one of the – it can be a really fun environment – but when you're like for Missouri, uh, St. Louis is two hours away. Kansas City is two hours away. Um, at best, you're going to get to the game at kickoff time unless, you know, the alternative is the games at like 8 p.m., which stinks for a whole different set of reasons. You're getting home at like one and then you either have to call in on Friday or, or go in on like four hours sleep. Um, it is definitely, it is a, a relatively significant pain and it's even worse if you, um, if you know, Nashville is what, almost three hours away then. So, yeah, um, well you also lose an hour too, because you're going into the Eastern time zone. It sucks. It's not a good thing. So no, I mean you would do it, but you do it for TV and you know, especially that week one being so incredibly loaded, I guess the thought there is, I mean, if they really had an opinion, if they had an input on the matter, was that uh, just competing with South Carolina Vanderbilt's probably better than competing with 38 more interesting games. And, and I mean, Appalachian State's pretty interesting in and of itself. Like, that should be a – Tennessee can't just lay down for that one. Um, but that, that's, that's it. That's why you do Thursday night games. It's, it's so there's less competition on TV, and, and I am assuming that's what the, the reason for it here was. Uh, if you scroll over to RockyTopTalk.com, the Tennessee blog at SB Nation um, – I have the, I had this linked specifically to see how many – the majority of the comments, people being so excited, interest is really going to peak here in the next four weeks. And then and then you get into that foaming of the mouth around 4th of July. <laughs> people are pissed. They can't go. It sucks. Um, we're, we're, we're very pro-mid-major on, on this program, on this outfit. I would say I would say we evangelize on behalf of the mid-major. <laughs> and, and yet we – I have no problem when South Florida and Memphis goes Friday night. Right. Almost feel like it's their place to do so. This bothers me a little bit. I don't know why. I have no affinity or, or acrimony on Tennessee. Just seems stupid. Also would like to know why ESPN's cannibalizing its SEC viewership between South Carolina, Vanderbilt, and then... And by the way, uh, pretty decent game here. This is not terrible. Tennessee um, getting that 2014 Arkansas hype. 2000, yeah, 2014 Arkansas hype. 15, 15. They 15, were, yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, and then you have a really good out-of-state program. Am I calling for an upset? No. Is it strange? Yes. I mean, it could Maybe. be ESPN. Like, there are a ton of games on, on the Foxes, I assume, like different Foxes here and there. Um, the competition on Thursday might be just good enough that they figure they needed a bigger battle, a, a bigger uh uh, you know, a bigger bat to swing than South Carolina Vanderbilt, uh, which really does just look like a dreadful game in every possible way. Um, if that's not it, I have no idea. I don't really know why you would do that, especially this late in the game. I mean, it wasn't, um, I mean, the season's still, you know, three months away or whatever, but uh, usually a lot of these decisions have been made well in advance, uh, especially for a team in the SEC, but, you know. So, uh, App State at Tennessee will be on the SEC Network. ESPN is going to carry South Carolina and Vanderbilt. Um, there are a host of other games scheduled that don't have assigned television times. I would assume that Rice and Western Kentucky will be played. That's a Thursday night game. That feels and, very FS1-ish, yeah. Uh, the FSN affiliates are listed as carrying Charlotte at Louisville. That, that That's a game we really should have moved. Really, really excited about that. <laughs> um, then you have a bunch of sort of, you know, bottom feeder crud, which I guess is just more 
you know, I see some ESPN three pickups here, Tulane and Wake Forest, um, UT Martin at Cincinnati, Jackson State at UNLV. I don't really care about most of this stuff. I'm just curious. This definitely feels like a Thursday where they, they didn't have a strong anchor going in. Uh, there have been some great Thursday night games that have kicked off the season. South Carolina and Vanderbilt is kind of like technically the best thing here. Uh, Big Ten Network also, don't want to leave, don't want to get too provincial here. Big Ten Network has Oregon State at Minnesota. First knee-jerk reaction, Bill, what kind of quality game is that going to be? <laughs> Pretty colors. Go. Go. Pretty colors. That's it? Yeah, I, I mean, Minnesota's not an aesthetically amazing team, and Oregon State might or might not still be terrible. Well, so so get hyped, get hyped. Um, it's football, though. It's football. That's the best time to play those games uh, because we're starved. We will watch because oh my god, live football is on again. Thank goodness. Um, and so yeah, let's not waste any good games right off the bat. We'll 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 eat anything that comes our way when we're starving. So then um, get those out of the way. We'll watch them, and then we'll actually watch the good ones too. Um, just for perspective, remember last year. One of the assiest games of the entire season was South Carolina, North Carolina. And oh, yeah. That's what kicked off the season last year in Charlotte. Uh, terrible game. Think about lapped it up. Really think about North Carolina's season if they don't lose that game. Fascinating. <laughs> uh, by the way, Friday is actually the sleeper. Friday is is quasi good, and that's the travel night. Um, you've got uh, a game for weird podcasts and play nobody reasons that we are, we're all going to watch. Colorado and Colorado State. And then you got K-State and Stanford. That's not bad. Yeah. Well, it depends on Stanford, I guess. But yeah, I mean, those are two interesting teams to watch, at least. All right. I don't know. You're going to you're gonna have to use the rest of the summer to convince me that Thursday night just needs to be like a, like a, uh, a light appetizer, kind of a prefix deal, and, and not just have meat right off, right off the bat. I'm saying you, still, you, you pull one of those major games from Saturday's rotation, or one of those even like B games, B minus games, and mm-hmm. stick it on Thursday. But I digress, and we move on. <laughs> uh, we wanted to jump in real fast before we get to the meat of the show, which is the uh, Texas Christian University uh, frogs that are horned. Uh, Bill, you and I both contribute to a fine publication uh, named named the Athlon. I was going to have a real generous plug for our friends here. The Athlon's based here in Nashville. Um, Mitch Light and those guys, Braden Gall, David Fox, we love them to death. Uh, they haven't sent me my free issue yet. Did you get your free issue? No, it seems like it takes a little while. Um, I'm not plugging anything until I get <laughs> my swag. Um, check those out. Um, this is sort of, I would say, we're, we're building a fake holiday inside the college football media world, which I feel like Memorial Day, Athlon is hitting new stance now, and then you've seen a lot of the top 25s come out in the past I'd say like week and a half from from national media types. Uh, I think maybe this is the suitable jumping off point for top twenty fives that don't mean anything. You feel like Memorial Day week it makes sense? Well, they mean more now than they did uh, the day after the national title game, which was the first run. Sure. Um, at least we know a little bit more about injuries or or whatever during the spring. But yeah, there's no question. Like when spring football is officially ended, May is kind of the month for the preseason top twenty fives to really get rolling. Um, and it's funny, like I, I go out of my way not to look at any of them because I want, I try as hard as possible until I've written about a team. I try as hard as possible not to have any concrete opinions or read any major concrete opinions about them. I just try to keep up with injuries and everything. Um, and a couple times a year, that means, uh, my kind of my perception 
well, for lack of a better phrase, my perception of the perceptions. There are a couple times a year when it's just completely incorrect. I remember last year, I, um, uh, the first one I was Notre Dame. When I was writing about Notre Dame, I was thinking of them as like the top 30 team that they were the year before. They really weren't that impressive in 2014. Uh, but they beat LSU, which should have been a, a clue on my part. But when I was writing, I was thinking, you know, I, I think they, they not only should they be in the top 15 next year in 2015, they really don't have any excuse not to be. I thought that was a relatively bold take on my part. And then everybody was like, uh, yeah, I have them number eight or something. Um, so that was a little so confusing. You, so you try and stay pure. Correct. And then the other one that from last year that was really uh, off-putting was Texas A&M. I um, – was looking at them as a top 30 team that might have some potential. And um, when I when when you looked at their schedule last year, like, yeah, they, they barely left the state of Texas, but they had a lot of games against other, what I thought were going to be other top 20 or 30 teams, like Arizona State and Arkansas and all this. Um, so my headline, I don't remember specifically what it was, but it was basically, you know, the Aggies might be good enough to deal with a brutal schedule. Because for a top, for a number 30 team, their schedule was really, really rough, even if it was mostly within the large borders of the state of Texas. Uh, the response was like was just pure scoffing from every other person that had written about or read about Texas A&M uh, because, you know, they're a top 10 team and they have the easiest schedule of any top 10 team around. Come on, they don't even they don't even leave the state. Like, whoa, 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 we're supposed to think of this as a top 10 team? <laughs> um, that one really threw me off, and um, I will say... So this that, is why you have, in addition to being really smart and inventing these matrix systems and enjoying math, <laughs> this is why you have this job, because I would have kept a long list, then I would have taken that list, corresponded it with home addresses, uh, gotten some nice stationery, something with a heavy card stock, um, and then written in good English cursive, uh, a long string of profanities accompanied by some mm, choice Polaroids. And I would have sent them to each individual. Because when you're that right, I don't know how you avoid going back and just rubbing their nose in the hindsight. Well, among um, other things, the, the conventional wisdom was pretty close to Notre Dame. Um, I was kind of, I was apparently late to that party. But no, I mean, but even in this process, like I still, you know, first of all, it's pretty obvious who's going to get the bowl bump in, in any given year. and um, and, and that'll kind of bleed into my perceptions and so like there will be a couple times each year where I basically um you know where where when I know that my eyes and the numbers and everything else completely disagree with what's coming down the pike I'll just I'll set it up as okay let's talk about this this year it was Houston where I basically said you know here's the case for Houston and now here are all the things that we're kind of ignoring if we really think Houston's a top 10 team last year it was TCU um I felt really good about this one first of all I pretty much nailed the big 12 last year I was looking back, like, I miss a lot, but uh, the, the, my, my opinions on the Big 12 were concentrated into something pretty awesome last year. I, I Let's see. Um, I said OU is probably way more of a Big 12 contender than anybody thinks. Um, TCU is overrated and will probably get bit by the injury bug because they were super lucky the year before. Uh, there was one other one that I, th- I felt pretty good about. But anywho, um, right. TCU... You're, you're cutting me off on a great transition, or I'm having to cut you off on a great transition because I do want to ask you one thing about Athlon before we move on. Oh, yeah. That. I want you, because I tortured you, to sell me on how their top four could happen in terms of making the playoff. And that's Alabama one, Florida State two, Ohio State three, and Clemson four. They have two teams from the ACC in the playoff. None from the Pac-12, not Notre Dame, and none from the Big 12. Um, Ohio State makes me nervous because they lose a ton. Um, 
And so that one, obviously they also, I mean, they're, they're, all the guys who are leaving are getting replaced by four-star guys, so they'll be good. But I, I'm really kind of trying to set the bar like top 15 good for them this year and letting me letting them surprise me a little bit. But in terms of the, the two ACC teams, I mean, it's pretty easy. Florida State, uh, let's say Clemson, well, they have Florida State first, so that would suggest that Florida State is is – more likely to be the 13-0 and 0 team. Well, that one's easy enough to explain because they've beaten, they'll have beaten Ole Miss, they'll have beaten Clemson, they'll have beaten, uh, well, a Florida team that might or not, might or not, might or might not be good. Louisville should be good. They've got more than enough to, to score the two seed in that situation. But Clemson... I'm right, I, not worried about that. Let me cut to the chase. So you have a Clemson team that loses to Florida State and makes the playoff over Michigan, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Notre Dame. I yeah. don't see that happening with well, a I mean, if state loss. If they're eleven and one, I mean, obviously, a, a lot of this depends on you know whether other teams are twelve and one or eleven and two or whatever. Um, but it's certainly possible, especially. I mean, let's see. I'm, I'm pulling up. I'm blanking on Clemson's get, uh, non-conference schedule all of a sudden. Um, Auburn at Auburn, Troy, South Carolina State, and, and South, then South Carolina. Carolina. Right. So there. This so is an Auburn. amazing schedule, but. You know, my whole purpose with stats and whatnot is to be able to look past just the schedule to figure out who's good. Uh, and if Clemson rocks, you know, if Clemson's just rolling and they're a top three or four team in S&P Plus and they've only lost to Florida State, and maybe they only lost by three or six at Dope Campbell, what's wrong with that resume? I mean, that's if they're a legitimate top three, four, five team and they get in an 11-1, I won't have a single complaint. Um, that yeah, is obviously something we haven't, That you know, the, we, we tr- we're treating the the – playoff committee like the Supreme Court with precedent and whatnot, and that's not a precedent that we've been exposed to yet, uh, how they will treat a non-champion who that is otherwise great. Um, in this situation, it's a lot easier to, to paint a picture of Clemson going undefeated and Florida State only losing to Clemson um, than the other way around. But no, if Clemson yes. if Clemson is a top two, three, four, five team and they play like it and they go 11-1, and one, I don't have any problem with that. They would also be bumping out an Oklahoma team that we would assume, since Athlon has them sixth, would lose to Ohio State. In the game oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, if, they, if Ohio State's up and there. And then I would assume at number six they have them maybe with two losses. They lose a game. in, in the, I guess they're, they're just... They're at TCU. To kind of neutralize it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, moving on. The Texas Christian University Horn Frogs. Here's why I'm interested. Not because you wrote about them this week, although I love you and I, and I love everything that you write, and, and, and I'm here to get learned like everybody else. But I'm interested in Texas Christian University because of the, of the Lone Star State. Bill, you were in our spring meetings at SB Nation. We were trying to figure out what to say and what to do about the 2016 season and the preview and all that stuff, right? We talked about Texas A&M. We talked about Texas. We talked about Texas Tech. We talked about Baylor. And this was before Baylor kind of hit the, really put the bass in your voice and say like, Baylor, right? (laughs) There are big, complicated, nuanced Texas problems at the Texas schools right now, okay? It's funny to me that the monolith building Texas A&M Aggies with the cast out idol of Johnny Manziel, defensive struggles, losing recruiting battles for in-state guys to other SEC programs, they're probably on the good side of the problem spectrum, I I would venture to say right now. Uh, Go back to TCU. Go back. No, hang on. Go back to TCU. They lose Trayvon Boykin. They lose Josh Jackson. And they're probably the most consistent and if not, I don't know about steady, but their boat is in the calmest water right now. 
I run into Chris Del Conte, the athletic director at various functions nationally, and he's like a wholesome, lovable Texas version of, of Robert Evans, the, the famous movie producer. He's like, yeah, babe. Things are great, babe. Oil's good, babe. Stadium's paid off. Here we have, in Texas Christian University, someone you're about to tell me is going to be under the radar, under look, or something like that. It, you were about to paint me another positive picture about TCU. Yes. Tell me again how they are not the, the hands-down winners of realignment. It's amazing to me to see how, how well they've done. It's amazing to me to see that they have, since we may not have Art Bryles in Waco come September, since we still don't know what the beast of, in Austin is, since A&M is shrouded with problems, since Texas Tech is so Texas Tech right now. <laughs> Extremely Texas Tech. How can you not look at TCU and say, as far as the state goes, they're going, they're going to pull ahead this year? Uh, I mean, in terms of stability, absolutely. Obviously, A&M or, you know... <laughs> With with thirty eight asterisks, Baylor could be really really good this year. And it, you know, plenty of teams could be good, but in terms of odds and stability, yeah, I mean, it, this is TCU's figured it out. And it, I mean, it comes down to making a good hire in Dennis Francione and then making an amazing hire in Gary Patterson. The end. You know, that's good hires can can take care of so much. And you know, whereas he. Uh, from a few, if you remember a few years ago, I mean, he brought in some sketchy characters of his own, um, but he booted those guys real quick. Like as soon as any sort of problem was uncovered, as far as we know, I mean, I, we don't. The, maybe pl- problems were lingering far before any of like the what was it like the drug ring stuff from a few years ago. Um, he booted. He seems to have a pretty quick trigger in that regard. He boots guys off the team, and it, it maybe hurts the team, but that's. W- <laughs> That's how you create a stable program. Even if you then, you know, lose a few games, you know, go four and eight in 2013, you still have a program with, with a very clear set of rules and expectations and, and obligations and this and that, and you end up with a steadier product. And that's, um, you know, that's, I, I realize, you know, it's, it's really hard to compare Baylor and TCU at the moment. And, and I really, I, I hate, I hate that my Baylor preview is coming up on Friday. I do not want to talk about Baylor yet. So I think what I'm going to do is t- tomorrow, before the Baylor preview, I'm going to write a completely separate piece with some thoughts about the about the assault and uh, the assaults and Bryles and everything else, and then I'm just going to link to it in the Baylor preview. I didn't want the Baylor preview to be completely about sexual assault. I didn't want to completely ignore the topic. So um, I think that's the way I'm going to handle it. But regardless, I mean, yeah, they just, they made a wonderful hire and Patterson has proved himself very organized and very capable of dealing with adversity when it comes up. Cause it's going to come up. There's no way to avoid bringing in sketchy characters to your program. Um, but he seems to have been at least, you know, wh- wh- whereas I'm sure rival fans can point to some, you know, this player or that player as a reason why this, what I'm about to say is untrue. It seems like he has the best response to issues when they come up. Um, and you know, you, just, uh, Oh, go ahead. No, well, two things I was going to say, if, if your editorial schedule is wrecked by an ongoing Baylor problem, then that would be 100% of the writers on this, on this yeah. podcast. <laughs> uh, because if you remember, we had to pull my big long, this is the new rivalry of Texas. Yep. Big, awesome labor day as hell type preview. That was a great piece. TCU and Baylor last year because, because the exact same thing. It's because the Overwatcher stuff was breaking at that time. So 
if Baylor screws your editorial schedule up, you call me. We'll have a collective cry. Um, I don't mean to make light of this situation. It is so potentially impactful on the conference, on so many things that are some structural items. It's you're not supposed to be left for words on a you know left without words on a podcast, but I'm I'm close to it. You know, we're we're also in a dangerous speculation rumor phase in terms of what's what people in the in the media are trying to be able to be, you know, what what they can logistically pin down and prove and talk about. So it's 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 going to be a bad time for a while for Baylor. Um, I think um, the one thing I'm going to mention in, in what I write tomorrow is that um, you know okay so maybe we take down our brows because of this. Maybe we take down Butch Jones too. You know it, uh, at some point in the, down down the line. Um, and it'll feel good, and, and our, our, our um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about how, you know, kind of, it's proof that you need character and, and you know, justice prevailed, da-da-da-da-da. But the, the structural issues that allowed this still remain, and, and so we're going to talk about Baylor and Tennessee, then that's going to stop for one reason or another, and then it'll pop up somewhere else. We'll talk about them, and we'll get mad about how the cops looked the other way or warned the coach or didn't do enough for the local media didn't investigate enough or this or that. He didn't, you know, whatever it is, it's going to happen again. And, and until we address more of the structural side of things, making sure that uh, if a woman is assaulted, she feels safe and right to report it, things of that nature. That's what's going to prevent it from happening over and over and over again over the coming years. Um, but anyway, it, it is impacting Baylor right now. Um, even Let if I transition would, you back to something lighter. Can I appreciate you recall that. your... Can you recall your headline for last year's TCU? Uh, the bandwagon is too full. Isn't, the TCU football bandwagon is a little too crowded right now. Bill, you tell me to get back on this bandwagon? I'm telling you to hop on right now before it gets too. And then this is another one. Maybe I'm not, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm not, say, uh, you know, maybe everybody else thinks they're a top 10 or 15 team too. So maybe I'm not actually saying anything anybody didn't know. But when I was putting together the TCU preview, I remembered about the injuries and whatnot, but you know, I kind of have in my head, I, I think I mentioned this with Notre Dame last week where, you know, I have in my head that I'm, I'm putting, t- I'm previewing say a top 25 team. And then as I'm putting everything together and figuring out what I'm going to say, I realized, damn, I'm talking about a top 10 team here. Um, it happened with Notre Dame. Uh, it definitely did not happen with Oklahoma state. I still have a lot of worries about them. Uh, but I, it, it seems to have happened with TCU too. I hedged and said top fifteen, maybe instead of top ten. I think uh, just because we don't. Kenny Hill, I think, I think he was kind of maligned at A and M. I think he took too much of the blame for that awful Alabama game. Uh, I think he'll he'll be really good. And if the other guy Sawyer beats Kenny Hill, that means Sawyer's really good. Um, yeah. But until we see that there's a new quarterback, we never really know about the quarterback situation. And they have, you know, they lose four starters on the offensive line. They return like four, five more guys who've started at some point, uh, and they've got good tackles, which is important with their system. Um, but yeah, we also, uh, and you mentioned this. I think honestly, you start you start with this, especially because you lose a quarterback, but you're trying to maintain consistency in an offense during the the, the silly season from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Two things, among many other things, were supposed to happen, and that was, one, Doug Meacham was supposed to be the next head coach at North Texas, and two, what was the other thing? Sonny, Sonny Cumbie was, was going to leave. Sonny yeah. Cumbie was supposed to be the offensive coordinator at Texas, and that didn't happen. No. Damn. No, I mean, he, he still lost the line across. I don't think this gets talked about enough. It got brought up. at, at, at it, 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 it continues to be brought up at coach, coaching functions. It, it goes back to what I wrote about last year with, with of course, Patterson hasn't left yet. What are you wanting for? Yeah. 
what are you wanting for? And it's a, it's a little scary if you're, I mean, I know what North Texas is and I know what they aren't, but it is also a head coaching job. And there's money, there's money around Denton, okay? There are resources around there and you're sitting on top of the Dallas-Fort Worth market. So turn down the head coaching job, if, if that's how it went, asterisk, asterisk, all that. But damn, TCU is, is a very appealing place for coaches, yeah, I mean, come be by TCU coaches. I've been told that by rival coaches. I've been told that by working for Chris Del Conte, working in that environment. I'm starting to understand now why things are getting so consistent. Yeah, I mean, come be passed on a sole coordinator job at Texas for a co-coordinator spot at TCU. And I mean, for all we know, he thought Meacham was going to leave or something, but but he stayed. And then Meacham, yeah, I mean, if I remember right, I think he passed on Tulsa the year before too, or at least passed on interviewing for Tulsa. Um, and then, then yeah, so that's – they're going to leave at some point. But every year – you know, it's like what I said about, like, Justin's Fuente at Memphis. Every year that they stay is another year of stability and growth and everything else uh, that maybe makes it uh, – to where you are more attractive to whoever replaces those guys when you, you know, to, to somebody else to replace those guys, I should say. So, um, no, it's just, it's a very comfortable situation. And I assumed like this time last year, I would have assumed that I'd be talking about TCU taking a major downfall, a step backwards this year because of, you know, the, because they lose so many guys, Boykin and Aaron Green and Listen B and, and Doxon and all the starters on the O-line. Um, but because of all the injuries they suffered last year, a, a lot more guys than we expected got experience. And so, um, you know, even like to, uh, Tisada and Iloka in the, in the secondary, other guys got experience because they were hurt and now they come back. Um, so, you know, I, I always have the line that, you know, injuries hurt in the present tense and help in the future tense helps even more when those guys, James McFarland, the end, like they, now all these other guys have gotten experience and now the injured guys are back and suddenly they're deeper this year than they were last year. That's not the way that was supposed to work. If Kenny Hill is successful, let's just say he wins the job. Okay. He potentially could break the brain of Texas A&M fans. <laughs> I, now I know A&M's in a similar situation having Trevor Knight, but circumstances are a little different. If you have this, if you have another guy leave and find success or stability or catch on or work better in this system than he did at A and M, it's going to break A and M's brain. And at here's what the point thing: do we, when we get to the A and M preview, can we just talk about all the other quarterbacks who are fine <laughs> for other jobs? Can we just that to me is as impactful on A and M season as it is anyone actually playing football for the Aggies. It's like the Florida situation. Yeah. No. Here's the deal about Kenny Hill too, like. Yeah, I kind of understand when you've got the the blue chip freshman behind him uh, who comes in and looks decent at first. I understand. Um, And I understand that um, Hill was maybe his performance was a little on the unstable side. His body language wasn't always good. But in in like the half or two-thirds of a year that he played at A&M in 2014, he completed 67% of his passes uh, with 23 touchdowns to eight interceptions. And... Uh, taking away 14 sacks, which isn't bad for a mobile quarterback. His sack rate was only 4.2%. He rushed for seven yards a carry. That's awesome. And I, and I understand that was that started off, he started off on fire and then trailed off pretty quickly. I get it. But that's awesome. That's that's If that includes a collapse and your stats are that good, you've got a really, really, really high seed lane. And you've, you've spent the last year working with Gary Patterson and Doug Meacham and Sonny Cumbie. Uh, I cannot even... I, I, I still I have the asterisk there that they do have to prove that their quarterback is you know I, I put that with anybody with a new quarterback pretty much but I I'm I cannot bring myself to worry about about TCU's quarterback situation because again if if Foster Sawyer then beats that guy out 
They've got an awesome quarterback either way, I think. I think we need to just dedicate a show topic maybe next week to best worst scenarios for transfer quarterbacks this year because it's when you especially when you when you fly over Texas and you start trying to figure out the crisscross of all the, the different guys, it's it's confusing. I forget them all. I mean, you have this year we're going to be watching Trevor Knight, Davis Webb, Kenny Hill. I mean, this is stuff that we're getting unprecedented. If one of the one or two of these guys is successful, it's going to change the way we're, we're, we'll look at this this new post market recruiting. Meanwhile, quarterback development. meanwhile, Texas will be starting a freshman quarterback most likely. Yeah, I'm trying just not to bring up the Austin related topics because I know that that's going to probably swallow like at least two shows of ours. I have to go back to Austin for a feature for the preview, so I'm just gonna just gonna kick it on. I'm gonna kick anything burn orange right down the road. <laughs> All right. So, Texas fans, we're going to get there, and we're going to live there, and we're probably going to rent a condo there for a little while just to see how things are. But just for now, I enjoy this protracted novelty that is TCU. Do you like them better than Oklahoma? I'm going to give you the top uh, question. I haven't – see, that's the thing. I, because I form so much, of my, so much of my opinion, my base of opinions, I guess – on these previews, I haven't previewed OU yet, yet, so I'm not sure. I assume I'll still have OU on top of TCU. Um, but it's a, it's going to be a lot closer, I think, than well than I thought it was about 24 hours ago when I was starting to put together the TCU preview. Um, I really do like TCU, and, and if I pick Oklahoma ahead of them, it's because I think Oklahoma is you know playoff caliber. So, And I will say, by the way, game's in Fort Worth this year. Could be a, uh, that could be a game we attend here. Could be a. Well, that's not really that's not really our style, right? Because everybody else will be at that game, so we have to find the. Yeah, but I got I got contacts at TCU. Yeah, that's I'm true. Hang out in some rich old man's bo- uh, box with some boosters. <laughs> that's that is PAPN style right there. Let the reporters ask the question. I'm just a blogger. Um, any other thoughts on TCU before we wrap up? Again, um, probably one of those programs we fixate on too much here because um, also we keep talking about how college football punishes usurpers. When is TCU going to get theirs? Well, I mean, they I guess they kind of did in 2012 and 13. It's just they overcame it. Um, I mean, they went, what, 7 and 6 and 4 and 8 in those two years. Um, and that was kind of – I was kind of screaming into the wilderness. Everybody's like, well, yep, Big 12 life, major conference life caught up to them. I'm like, well, they kicked off 30 guys and uh, their quarterback went to rehab and they didn't have an offense right. all of a sudden. Um and then he makes a new, a couple of new assistant hires. Gets uh, at least in twenty fourteen, kind of gets a little bit more luck with injuries. Starts recruiting better, and then poof, they're right back. So I think that was or, their, or, I think or that was their punishment. Been, yeah, or it could have just been TCU adjusting to the the physical toll that Big Twelve defenses take on a team. Nah, it could have been it could have been that big time football that they were nah. adjusting to. That, that nah. was probably it, right? Nah. Yep. No. Nah. Nah. Of course not. Uh, nah. Of course not. Um. Okay, uh, so we're going to transition real quick. We're going to talk about kind of a strange thing, but um, we were kicking around ideas. We are slowly becoming organized on this program. It's terrifying. Um, you are working on the book? Yes. How's the book going? Everything good with the book? Yeah, I fell a little behind. I think one of the things that I've found is what I was most worried about, and it's kind of it's sort of coming to fruition. Um, I think I mentioned it on here before. The, the idea that I don't want – like I'm talking about 50 different teams – I don't want verse, chorus, verse every chapter. Like, um, 
they came in with expectations and here's their quarterback. And then they started the season and as they went along and you could basically end up writing the same kind of flow for every single chapter in the book. Although, I mean, it was, it's not just undefeated teams or anything. There are a lot of ups and downs in there, but still like that was my biggest concern was repetition and, and, and energy basically. Um, so as I go along, I'm trying to make sure I'm not really repeating myself or repeating kind of the, the layout of a chapter. And that gets a little tricky every now and then, but I am through, I'm through 20, um, no, 20, 21, I guess. And, uh, so almost halfway there, the last one I did was 1962, Nebraska. I've got uh, a 1965 UCLA file pulled up on my computer right now. And that one, that one's real. That's one of my favorite teams to talk about. Like just 38 dramatic endings. They beat USC on a bomb. They beat Michigan, number one, Michigan state, uh, tackling them at the half yard line on a two point conversion in the Rose bowl. A uh, really, really fun uh, season. But I, what, I, what I found I was going to do, I kind of figured this out from the start. Um, two of the teams on my list from the start were 1959 Syracuse and 1959 Ole Miss. Um, I, I decided since that's almost kind of the halfway point of the book, and since those two stories are, are so interesting when kind of mashed together, I decided to make that kind of a showcase chapter. I think we might – we haven't finalized this yet, but Jason and I were talking about maybe – if I did, maybe as part of our preview package, putting a couple of the um, sample chapters in there to, to entice. I'm not really worried about giving like two chapters away since there were 49 of them. Um, but so and, and so I think maybe the, the 59 chapter will be one of them. But it, it, that really culture in college football interact so much more than in any pro sport because it's in every town like college football to college basketball to an extent, but college football is obviously way bigger. Um, and I think it was fascinating to, to walk through like one of the teams on the list is 58 Auburn. And I didn't really touch on it in that chapter because I knew I'd be touching it on 59, but I mean, they, if you were playing uh, in, in, well, maybe in the sec, but definitely if you were playing in, if you were LSU or Mississippi or Mississippi state or Auburn or Alabama, um, the pool of available teams for you to play um, was tiny because basically state law said you cannot play an integrated team. Um, and the Sugar Bowl couldn't really attract a lot of uh, impressive teams. It had to be somebody from the SEC or Southwest Conference because the Sugar Bowl, because there was segregated seating at Tulane Stadium. Um, and and like the, there were just these institutional barriers. We, we know very well that racism is everywhere, but in the South, it really was built into the structure of the laws. Uh, and it was a lot harder to, there was no way to work around that. And I think sports played a really interesting role in slowly helping supporters of those laws back away from their dumbass opinions because suddenly it was interfering with teams' ability to win the national title. Um, like the, the fit was a 59 old miss baseball, uh, winning the sec t- uh, title for the first time, but not able to compete in the NCAA tournament, uh, Mississippi state three times won the sec and couldn't compete in the NCAA tournament and it's, and got fed up. And in 1963 snuck out of Starkville to go play Loyola, Illinois in like East Lansing, Michigan, I think in the NCAA tournament, which was one of the coolest stories, uh, ever. But even if, if you want to read about that, if you want to read about that, there's a book called champions for change written by my friend Kyle Beasley. There you go. And in 62, of course, 62, of course, you know, Wright Thompson has cataloged the, the Ole Miss season in the way that, you know, as James Meredith was trying to enter into the University of Mississippi, the role that the football team played in kind of trying to tamp down the riots a little bit. Um, 
Like there's so much like yeah. Co- yeah well, they, basically they were tired of almost getting involved in the violence. Let's put it that way. They they weren't standing up for for truth and justice so much as they were, you know, saying, "Hey, knock it off." Um, but they did play a role. And I'm going to try uh, and make it through that without making like a, a large fart noise in the background, but I feel like I restrained myself amicably. Continue. <laughs> Hey, I've read the books. I've read the books. I say it counts. I say it counts. Sure. <laughs> Could have been worse. Um, but, in, yeah, in 59, basically, you know, the numbers I did, they estimated S&P Plus and whatnot. Like, I think, if I remember right, Ole Miss and Syracuse were either the two best teams of the 50s or two of the top three. Um, and they were well into the list of the uh, of my top 50 since World War II that I did. Um, two tremendous, awesome teams that not even for a second had an opportunity to play each other. As, far, like, as I was reading through these materials, I saw one that was clearly written from an old Miss perspective where it said that Syracuse at one point passed on a Sugar Bowl opportunity because they wanted to face an easier team in the Cotton Bowl. <laughs> uh, no. Wow. Uh, no, that, that it wasn't an option to play in the Sugar Bowl. And at the time, they were number one, and Texas was number two, and they were going to play in the Cotton Bowl, except then Texas lost two. Um, well, and they played Texas anyway, but Texas lost, so they weren't number two anymore. But um, it was just really that's I, I I wanted to make that a showcase chapter, so to speak. And I think as I got into it, it took me a week. Like I'm basically cranking these out about every two to three days, three a week or so. That one took me extra time because I wanted to get it right. But I really like where it's just such a like like I said, culture and football and college football always interact, but there's like no better example or more stronger. Uh, just you look at a top 20 poll from that time and half of the teams are integrated and half of them weren't. And they just, it was two completely different uh, national title races almost at that point. I was just thinking about how much content you're, you're producing and how I'm going to have to discredit that. So I don't look like an even worse employee. Oh, it's, it's, it's starting to wear like this. A lot of things are coming to, uh, to a head at the same point right now, like this week and, and last week and next week, kind of, a. It's it's starting to almost become a little on the overwhelming side, especially since our you know the four year old is finishing with damn school this week, which means like thirty eight other events last week and this week, um, and we got our call re- car recalled and then had to go pick it up. So lots of little lots of things going on at the moment, but um, no, I really that that's a, a I, the chapter I think turned out pretty good, and, and I I'm looking forward to as I always say when talking about the book, I'm looking forward to people reading it. Of course you are, um, but. I don't want to. I'm just curious about what, what the the big appeal for deciding on this anchor piece. Why this? Is it just the, is it just the the numbers uh, reinforcing how good these two teams that never played for social reasons were? I, is there a better? Can you find a better example where a cultural issue kept two teams that were this good from playing? I think that was probably part probably of it not. because they were so good. Um, I mean, that was the year. I mean, Ole Miss allowed. Three touchdowns all year. One of them was on Billy Cannon's punt return, uh, which for for the purposes of the book, I got to watch like 50 times on repeat trying to describe it. Um, and it's just it's still just about the most amazing thing ever, especially since he talked about how, um, you know, he fielded it on the right sideline. First of all, it was supposed to get punted out of bounds, but it checked up. And if it goes out of bounds, Ole Miss probably wins three to nothing and wins the national title. Um, it checked up. He caught it and he was supposed to run all the way across the sideline to the left. Uh, but he's like, man, I'm tired. It's it's fourth quarter, and I'm exhausted. I'm just going to run to the right here, and oh, well, that guy didn't tackle me, and oh, I just ran through that. Ta- I guess I have to. Oh, I got to juke two more guys. I guess I'm running. And, he, and by the end of the play, like the the ref is out running him to the end zone. 
But that was one of it took a superhuman punt return. And then the other two uh, uh, touchdowns they allowed were like from the three yard line after a fumble and from the seven after an interception or after a block punt, I think. That was it. They, that was the that was the only points they allowed all year. And then Syracuse, of course, had Ernie Davis and and uh, Gershwetis. <laughs> uh, probably not how you pronounce that, but um, and and that was that that was by far Schwartzwalder's best team. And they just they were both loaded and they they were unstoppable and that would have been a, an awesome matchup that just didn't happen and and so that allowed me to like, there's no my, my idea with this book was to tell the the history of the sport through these teams and there was obviously there were some um, social issues that were going to be tackled and that was a pretty good time to tackle some of them. That, that's good. That's solid. That's solid. I I, I didn't want to act like I was sort of questioning your editorial judgment <laughs> there. I just it's it's not something that's well known which which I'm kind of. I think is a good thing. At least it's definitely from a writer to writer, it's a good thing because you're you're not dealing with the you know the burden of those who have come before you on this topic. So, um, I'm sure Ole Miss fans are really going to love hearing about it. Um, kind of halfway joking there and halfway not. So, um, I think when that chapter is actually done, we'll have to dedicate a little bit more time to it and possibly. Drag some people from Ole Miss. Well, the, yeah, the chapters they, they tend to love talking about the past. <laughs> the chapter is done, but uh, what I'm doing here is I'm it's a it's a rough draft. So come when I'm done with all of them, I'll circle back and start. You know, hey, those of us who supported you ain't read it yet. All right, it ain't done. <laughs> but yeah, when if if we do end up including that one in the in the preview thing in August, that might be a pretty good time, especially since that's about when SEC previews are coming out anyway. So plus it'll give Syracuse football fans something. Damn right, to talk that about. team was awesome. Instead of talking about now, all right, we got reader questions. We got good ones. We solicited it early. I think it gave it, it gave you you the listenership time to percolate. Perhaps maybe maybe that helped, or maybe maybe we just culled like a bunch of good questions away from the crap. Whereas normally we do it right before we go on the air and we have to sort through Twitter live. So, um, which which one do you want to start with? Well, you mentioned the one from um, our friend Justin yesterday. What's the lowest ranked team in in my rankings to ever win a national championship, and what was that ranking? Um, yeah, I thought. Um, and and let me let me tack this on real real fast. Maybe it's two separate questions. You talk in the preview for, about uh, the TCU preview that we centered the show on today. You talk about how sometimes your numbers don't like them, or sometimes your numbers don't like a team too much, but right. you still do. Do you feel like that gives fans an, an out or an excuse that we're, well, you know, if Bill doesn't trust his numbers, why should I? If you want to, if you want to be skeptical, you'll find a reason to be skeptical. It doesn't really matter what comes out of my mouth. That is very true. That is very true. Um, and plus, you know, when I talk about that, it's more in regard to projections than like in season rankings. But I mean, all of this ranking stuff, there's going to be some color associated with it. Like uh, they, you know, this team didn't grade out very well, but it's probably because this guy was hurt or, you know, this or that. There's always going to be context involved with each rating and, and interpreting that context properly is kind of what uh, is what leads to good analysis of it. I mean, anybody can look at the numbers and, you know, say here are the top 10 teams or whatever, but that, what I'm trying to do is then add, you know, watch the games, nerd. I tried to, you know, add what I've seen and what I believe to where the numbers start. And and basically the way I do my projections for TCU, 
it didn't help like those, those guys coming back from injury, they weren't included because I was doing this in February and I didn't have all that information yet. So when I rerun the numbers, they will be a little better for that. Uh, and then it's just like, you know, transfers are hard to incorporate into projections. I think they just have a lot of aspects that aren't going to be included in the way I draw up my projections and I like my projections, but yeah, it's going to be pretty tough. But to answer the question then, um, if we're talking about specifically my S and P plus stuff. So from night, from 2005 to the present, uh, I believe that if, I, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, let's see, 05 Texas was great. 06 Florida was good. Um, wait, where is 06 Florida on this list? If it's not 06 Florida, it's 07 LSU. Because after that, 08 Florida was awesome. 09 Alabama was good. Uh, 2010 Auburn was good. Not, not amazing, but good. Uh, and then all the Alabama teams and whatnot, they've all been awesome. So... Uh, if we're talking about since 2005, I think the answer is either 07 LSU or 06 Florida. Uh, if we're talking about all time, the, I think if the one I've come across, and I'm just about here on my football study hall series, um, I'm to 1982. That's the next one I'm doing. Uh, that means I'm three away from 1980, where Georgia barely slipped into my top 20 uh, and won the national title. Um, and I think... When I when I mentioned that, I think Georgia fans are a little more understanding of that than I than I maybe would have originally expected because they know. I mean, that was a magic ride that year. They beat Tennessee 16-15, Clemson twenty to sixteen, Ole Miss twenty eight twenty one, South Carolina thirteen ten, Florida twenty. Of course, the Lindsey Scott game twenty six twenty one. Run Notre Lindsay, Dame, run, run Lindsey, run. Uh, Notre Dame seventeen ten. Like that was just a you know that was Herschel Walker and a few clutch plays. Uh, that team really was not was not even close to being the best Dooley team at Georgia, um, but you know, so like like I always say, you win a national title by just being good every year and hoping the breaks go your way at some point, and that year it did. And um, yeah, the yeah, very next year, the very next year, they scored thirty nine more points, allowed fifteen fewer points, and lost twice. Um, but you know, sometimes it just happens, and that was. Uh, that was not a great Georgia team. They just figured out a way to win every game, and so they won. Shout out to all the 35-year-old stockbrokers, hedge fund guys, and corporate lawyers in Marietta and Sandy Springs whose middle name is Lindsay. I'm serious. I'm serious. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. You had, you had some Vinces. You have some dogs named Dooley, but Lindsay got thrown around a bit. Um, possibly the best – okay. I said last week that the question – we had a best question ever, I thought, that was asked. It was either the last show or the show before. And now I'm actually it was it was the North Carolina schedule because I just thought it was such a unique way of looking at something. It was that North Carolina was facing the most first year head coaches, and I thought, damn, that's a really good question. I like that. Provides good conjecture for us. It's informed. It's unique. This next question is probably going to be my favorite question. I don't know if it's better than the North Carolina question, but you're all my children, and I love you somewhat equally. Um, Will Reiners asks, uh, he sent us an email and said, shortest question in PAPN history. Bill and Steven, what is the geographic center of college football? Signed, Will in Nashville. Um, this is like a, a zen exercise for me. This is the sound of one hand clapping. This is the tree in the woods making a noise. This is the most centering and calming question. I don't know why. Because I, I sit here and I think about it. I think about all the different parameters that you could apply to this. Before I even start trying to apply different models to it, Bill, what do you, do you have a quick answer? Um, Oklahoma City wants to be the center of the, the country. 
Uh, they'll have you when you enter Oklahoma City, you see a little map showing like all the highways that center in. So you know that's basically Kansas, Oklahoma would be the technical geographic center of the country. Now college football, uh, if you think of things in terms of you know those electoral maps where they have the states that have the most electoral votes a lot bigger, so Montana's tiny and Texas is huge and all that. Um, if you think of college football in those terms, then basically like the mountain time zone barely exists. And the and so the the center of the quote unquote college football country would end up in like Lexington or something, wouldn't it? Or or, Col- well, or well, Columbia. Well, so here here here's the answer. I think, and I'm going to sound terrible for saying this. I think it's Nashville, and I'm not talking about culturally because if I had to go with a large populous body of diverse college football fans, I would probably say Atlanta, because as a city. Atlanta is sits in, in such a, a core hotbed region for college football and then also brings in so many fans of programs across the country. You know, there are, there are so many Michigan bars in Atlanta and Ohio State and USC fans and so on and so forth and Syracuse, you name it. But when I came back into the media six years ago, whatever it was, I was living in Nashville for a completely different reason related to the job I had before. As I looked around, as when I was just freelancing, just starting to like pitch pieces and magazines and websites, and so I, I realized I was in a really good spot for college football because back then I was covering my own way. So when I would just, a little journalism behind the door here, don't get too excited for this awesome behind the scenes journalism content. Most freelancers pitch a story, but they they eat the cost of whatever it takes to get the story done up front, and then they bill a, a solid amount. Okay. So for me, it was always easier and cheapest to take a car and drive somewhere. And so I can tell you firsthand, I also prefer to do that because I think air travel is akin to some sort of slow form of like torture prohibited by the Geneva Convention because I'm six foot five and also I hate people. So I like to drive. So from Nashville, it takes me six and a half hours to get to uh, maybe close to seven depending on traffic to get to Ohio State. All right. It takes me four and a half, maybe five hours, depending on traffic, to get to Athens, Georgia. And I can keep doing this. It's about three and a half to Tuscaloosa. It's just under three to get to Knoxville. It's about three and a half to get to Oxford. Um, and I know you're thinking, well, you know, I'm a UCLA fan or I'm a, you know, Wazoo fan or whatever. I get that. But I'll put Nashville up for places that you can drive eight hours to get to major programs. The sheer number of them, I think, are... I think I'd have a tough time pinning another city in the United States and being able to get to so many impactful programs in a day's drive. I consider a day's drive to be eight, eight and a half hours. So with that rubric in mind, I feel like I'm here. Now, I'm not saying that Nashville is the best college football city in the country. It has kind of a similar thing that Atlanta and Houston do, which are these big southern cities attracting you know, a thriving economy, a lot of transplants. And so you, and I, you know, it is college football is the most important sport in this city. Much like those, I think. But I, I don't want to get into the never-ending argument of what's the best college football town, city, school, campus. Like I, I have no interest in that. That, to me, is conjecture, clickbait crap. But I think I'm there. I think I'm close to it. Maybe you could also argue maybe Memphis. Yeah, Memphis, I was... Um... If Lexington were in, are you like looking the... at a map right now? See, here's the problem. I think it's something off the cuff for sake of conversation, and now I'm going to get numbers to prove me wrong. Well, you were, you were, are you on a map right now? You were rambling, so you know, I, I, I had to occupy my time. 
No, I, if, if, if Kentucky... This is, this is what it's like to co-host a <laughs> podcast with Cyborg. Continue. If Lexington were in like the southwestern corner of Kentucky, I would say Lexington. But Nashville is kind of the closest thing to southwestern Kentucky uh, of any kind of major college town. So I'll, I can do Nashville. You could, I, I would hear arguments from Memphis, St. Louis, Louisville, um, not quite Birmingham, I guess. That's too far. But yeah, I could say, you know, Nashville, we can agree sometimes. All right. I'm just saying. I could even drive to like... Baton Rouge, I've done it before. I can get pretty far. I mean, I, I've driven I, from here to Black. I've, I've driven from here to Blacksburg. You could drive from here to Chapel Hill. Not a huge college football town, but uh, Columbia, Clemson is a super easy drive. You just because, and also, you get, if you drive from here to Clemson, you get to eat lunch in Asheville, North Carolina. That's true. Um, I wouldn't drive here to Gainesville, but you know, I, there's it's also Southwest Hub, so it's cheap to get other places. That's all I got. I feel like that's the answer. I am sure this is going to create a ton of response and say, no, it's this, no, it's that. I think that's why it's a great question. But when thought about, I just really like this question, Bill. I, I like the way it makes people think about college football. Because like you can't just tack down the middle of the nation and say this is it, right? Because you have these large swaths of, of nothing. I'm not making fun of like the Dakotas or whatever. I'm just saying it's concentrated in certain areas. I think it's because I'm so obsessed with the provincialism of the sport. <laughs> and I also simultaneously don't want to be the Southern guy who insults, like, the West Coast. It's extremely popular right now to insult the West Coast, college football fans especially. Because the Pac-12 network is struggling. That doesn't mean that fans don't care. I don't buy into that argument. You know, because they signed a bad contract on their network and, and that there's a multitude of problems within the conference and the league office it doesn't mean that people don't care i don't like i've been there i've seen the fans i've talked to them they care they do there's just, there's a lot going on in the west coast there's a lot going on in the northeast but there's a lot of college football fans up there i hate that crap mm. and it's usually perpetuated by people from birmingham so it's their fault <laughs> stupid birmingham it's their fault um We've got a couple of big picture questions. Do we want to jump on those now? Um, we are approaching. We are we have passed sixty minutes. We've got about two more minutes before we need to hit box score bingo. Uh, so I will. We just so I don't forget this one. We just got one as we were recording uh, from our friend friend Daniel Raider. He's an OSU guy. Um, lots of Raiders in Oklahoma, by the way. I grew up with a few of them in Weatherford. Uh, that, that seems to be an Oklahoma name. Anyway. Uh, he basically had a question for each of us and I'll tackle mine real quick because I was also able to pull this up and do it while you were talking. Um, which makes it, you don't listen to me. I hate this marriage. (laughs) Um, so he said, you know, he's, he's a big 12 guy. He's glad to see me previewing the big 12 right now. And, um, he was dismayed by the fact that they were the bottom ranked power five conference because that's, that's how I go in order. Um, if the lowest team from each power five conference was removed from the conference, um, would it would it help any? In other words, how how much is Kansas dragging down the Big Twelve? So real quickly, I went in and looked at the end of the year rankings. So last year, at the end of the year, the average S and P S and P plus ranking of an SEC team was plus ten, which means plus you know ten points above average, basically ten points better than average. Um, Big Ten was in second place at seven point four. It got really clustered here. Big Ten's at seven point four. Pac twelve six point nine. ACC six point seven. Big 12 is at 5.1, like a point and a half behind the ACC. If I take Kansas out of that, um, the order stays the same. The SEC goes up to 11.2 without, uh, who was it, Kentucky dragging them down. Big 10 goes up to 8.9 without Rutgers. Pac-12 goes to 8. Kentucky, Kentucky, by the way, the center of college football. That's right. That's right. Uh, Pac-12 went up to 8.6 without Oregon State. 
Uh, Big 12 went up to 8.1 without Kansas. And then the ACC actually uh, was only at 7.6 without uh, Wake Forest. So, yeah, Kansas Kansas dragged the Big 12 down this year, but it was basically the difference between being fourth and fifth. You're still a half point behind the Pac-12, um, you know, eight-tenths of a point behind the Big 10. So it, it, so the answer is yes, Kansas is terrible and, and dragged your conference down, but only so much. And, All right, you yep. ready? Steven, Bill's latest preview of my alma mater, OK State, was allegedly played, oh, who allegedly played your alma mater <laughs> in the Sugar Bowl this year. Their sharp and sudden decline in performance in 2014 and somewhat 15 roughly coincides with when the Sports Illustrated hit piece on OSU came out in 2013. While nothing was actually discovered, it seems plausible that a tangible impact could still have been felt on recruiting, both legal and otherwise. In uh, 2015, May 2014 seemed like more like an outlier, but the timing has always struck me as something more than a coincidence. Do you think there's a legitimacy, legitimacy in that thought? Me no speak. Also, in light of what's going on at Baylor and Ole Miss, should we expect to see similar declinations? We could do, you could have just said declines there, bro. Um... <laughs> and on-field performance for both Bears. Very respectfully, Daniel Rader. P.S. I realized my question wasn't about Purdue, so I included them down here in the bio screening process. That is funny. Shut up. Um, oh, let's go backwards. Um, yeah, I think it's very possible you see immediate impact on Baylor and Ole Miss for very, very different reasons, but you will see an immediate impact because I think that uh, long, long answer short, Ole Miss would at least brace for some scholarship maybe just a shaving off the top for X amount of classes over Y amount of years. So you might see an immediate regression in the 17 class. Now, regression is a matter of perspective. They could go from a top 5, top 10 class to a top 25, top 30 class. Um, that is not a program breaker in any way, shape, or form, especially if they develop consistent quarterback play with Shea Patterson. Baylor, similar situation. However, Baylor has more of a trap door in that no one has talked about Hugh Free stepping down with the information that we have right now. Okay, now that now that we're building to a point where the idea of Art Briles not being at Baylor is being bandied about, you have to look at their future in in much broader and more serious terms. So, absolutely, yes. Could there be regression at Baylor? There could be a cataclysm at Baylor. So, um, as far as mm, tying in a hit piece, and it was a hit piece, and it lacked teeth. And it did a couple things terribly wrong. I'll say that. How about, how about we turn this into a positive, Bill? No, no reason to tear someone down to raise someone up, even when I'm raising myself up. When we put together Bagman, we looked at the Oklahoma State piece, and we said, hey, let's not do these three or four things. <laughs> and I don't mean to laugh, because I know everyone involved at SI, but there were things that, that caused major problems at Oklahoma State that could have actually been avoided by SI had they maybe shifted the editorial paradigm a little, just a, just a little bit. Um, I, I, Bill, do you have numbers in front of you? I, I mean, I, f- I feel like a 13 hit piece saying that the program has declined rapidly. Is this because they were in national title contention a couple years before that? Well, the piece was a lot about the, the, the Iowa State Friday night season is 2011, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, the piece, if I remember right, I mean, the piece was mostly about, you know, things they were doing wrong, right? It wasn't necessarily that they're falling apart on the field, um, but it was things. No, he's saying he's saying that the story created. Uh, okay, well, uh, the created the one co- contribution I can make to that is the fact that they're uh, 
two-year recruiting ranking, the way I, do, I set up uh, the two- and five-year recruiting rankings for projections and whatnot, um, they are 40th in two-year recruiting. That is definitely lower than it was, uh, say, a couple of years ago. They, they were never recruiting okay. at, like, a top-20 level, but they were safely in, I think, that, like, 20 to 30, 32 range. Uh, these last two years, they've been at 40th. Now, that could be because they had a small class. It's really hard to take that into account, uh, with the recruiting rankings to a certain, if you have a really small class, like 16 or something, um, then that can affect that. But I mean, there might be something to the fact that they've only ranked 40th in the last two years. Short, but broad strokes on Oklahoma state is that the inside of coaching circles, Gundy has been, uh, active on testing the free agent market to say the least. I think maybe, maybe what you're seeing here is Oklahoma finding a plateau in its current identity, you could say, in that they, they found a way to achieve consistent success in the Big 12, recruiting against heavyweights in markets like Dallas and Houston and OKC, and now they're not really sure how to take that next step. Is it, It's not really a matter of resources. They don't want for much other than bringing in exposure, dealing with the, and you know this, Bill, being an Oklahoman, uh, you know, you have a Goliath ac- across the state that is a national brand. I think this is more larger picture. Um, we, we, we already talked about this in the show, college football hates usurpers. I don't think that Sports Illustrated has, or, or SB Nation or NBC or, or CBS or anybody has the teeth anymore. I, I don't think the landscape exists when you, you're not writing a story about a coach who's, involved in a sex abuse scandal or who is involved in something other than just players getting paid in a locker room culture of, you know, quote unquote lawlessness, that's just not going to cut it anymore in terms of trying to, to tear apart a program. We're, we are in a post, <laughs> post something world post. I mean, I, I keep going back to the, the Ofer run that the NCAA enforcement made on Miami, on USC, on North Carolina. Uh, it, it's just, I don't think it, I don't think these things even carry the same weight anymore in terms of perception. We're, we're not really seeing it a ton in recruiting. Recruits will pull away if they're uncertain, if they're uncertain about a future, and I think that's what he's getting at. But not about not on moral terms. And so, I think Oklahoma State just really has to sort of figure out what they want to. If if they're serious or or if they even think it's legitimate to compete at the level of the Texas Oklahoma um, platform, I think. It's more than just some negative people. And don't, don't rambling, let, rambling answer, Bill. But there's there's a lot working here, and I, I I do feel like his thesis is wrong, and that you're tying SI to to on field decline. Well, no, so I, I think I, I fundamentally disagree. I with think that. Um, you know, let's not underestimate the impact of of other coaches being able to say, hey, I mean, you can consider OSU if you want. It doesn't sound like Gunny's going to be there very long. It sounds like he's looking at you know taking advantage of the fact that he was mentioned for like 38 different jobs over a two year span. Um, if I had to, it, it, to it, it's always a bad idea in 90% of these cases to, to point to one factor. Yeah. It, it, there's so there's multitudes of factors and timing plays such an important role when you talk about program skids or program declines or, I think that if I had to do this, I had to play the game and say it's X, I think it's more the fact that Gundy's had a foot out the door according to multiple people in multiple places over multiple years. And what is Oklahoma State's tenure? What is the tenure structure? Yeah. Yeah, in my preview yesterday, or whenever that was, yeah, I guess that was yesterday, um, I, the, my, my 
the thing I find with all these teams that recruit in that 20 to 40 range, but produce top 10 or 15 results for a while, it's just really hard to keep that up. Like if you have one or two bad recruiting cycles where you can't get the, get a few diamonds in the rough to polish them up and have them be really nice depth pieces. And suddenly you end up with a lack of depth or in, you know, part of OSU's problem was suddenly they didn't have a quarterback who, uh, was both reliable and could stay on the field for a little while, and that that was a big part of their 2014 struggles. And they were they you know they graduated a ton from that defense in 2013. I mean, you can go each step of the way and and kind of figure out exactly where they went wrong. Uh, but I think the the big picture thing is just it's really hard to keep playing at that level. Even Gary Patterson, who we just praised for half the show, he he went four and eight in 2013. He went 11 and and. Uh, 13 in 2012, 13. So, I mean, even he found it hard to continue at that level without a step backwards for a little while. And, um, you know, I think that's, I mentioned yesterday, this is a big year for Gundy because I, you know, in that 2014 piece, I basically said, you know, he gets the benefit of the doubt until he doesn't deserve it anymore. He, he produced top 15 or 16 teams for like four or five straight years. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. And then they immediately went to like 60th and they rebounded last year and they were, certainly uh good last year and so now we just have to find out are they do they still have that top 15 level in them or or now are they going to be in more of like a 20 to 40 range they're going to be good they're fine uh, in that regard they're not going to start going three and nine um but we'll see if they have that extra gear again all right um you know what i think go for it and then we got to go to get to box score i think you're stalling i think it's time for blind box score bingo (laughs) let's do it you ready Uh, i'm pulling it up now you scared no you feel that? Um, as always, we've played box score bingo two or three times on the show. We make it a regular segment um, when we remember to do it. If you have any submissions for blind box score bingo, stop CCing Bill on your emails, okay? If you doubt the authenticity of the magic trick, don't show him where the strings are. You're supposed to email me, Junior at SB Nation. Um, as always, send me a link to what the actual game is, and then I'm going to need an image from you of the box score with the name stripped. No, I'm not going to Photoshop it myself. Yes, I love you anyway. Okay? All right. Bill. Yes. You ready? All right. Uh, today's box score bingo is brought to you by one Ryan Sergensen. I'm sorry to mispronounce your name, which I'm surely doing in some way, shape, or form. Ryan sends in a box score bingo. It's of a recent game. We also ask that you try and send one from the last three or four seasons. Um, we're going to have this posted up on the website. So you can do one of two things. You can listen along and, and jot it down. Fun, like a little Orphan Annie decoder ring moment, okay? Or you can pause the podcast, pull up the actual post on SB Nation, and we'll have this image posted there uh, for you to follow along with as well. Either one. All right. We have a red team and we have a blue team. <clears throat> Bill, the red team had 17 first downs. The blue team had 18. All right. Okay. The red team was 5 of 16 on third downs. The blue team was 4 of 15 on third downs. The red team was penalized three times for 29 yards. The blue team was penalized eight times for 41 yards. The red team's total net yards were 407. The blue team's total net yards were 318. The red team ran 73 total plays. The blue team ran 66 total plays. The average gain per play for the red team was 5.6 yards. The average gain per play for the blue team was 4.8 yards. Of those yards, the red team had 101 net rushing. The blue team had 13 yards net rushing. Net yards passing, the red team had 306. The blue team 
at 305. Passing, the red team was 22 of 33. The blue team was 21 of 39. The red team was sacked once. The blue team was sacked five times. The blue team threw two interceptions. The red team threw none. And then, did I do fumbles? Uh, I don't think. The red team had one fumble that they lost. The blue team did not fumble. Any other information? I would say that's that pretty much covers it. Blue team yeah. had a good punt return in there too, it says. Uh, this one includes a little bit more information about punts and sacks and whatnot. So, uh, Okay. All right, for the, for, the, for the listener's sake, we'll run down punts, all right? Uh, we'll go with the blue team had a punt return for 28 yards. They had four kickoff returns for 65 yards. The red team had two kickoff returns for 25 yards and one punt return for no yards. The red team also returned the two interceptions from the blue team for a total of 28 yards. Bill Connolly, what happened in this game? Um, I mean, at first glance, uh, you know, with the caveat again, if, unless the red team was settling for a ton of field goals uh, and or missing them, uh, it, it's really hard to see how the blue team would have won this game. So basically, you've got the red team outgaining them overall, um, 5.6 yards per play to 4.8. They had more plays, perhaps because uh, the blue team had two turnovers to the red team's one. Uh, blue team tried to pass more. They, including sacks, they had 44 attempts to the red team's 34. Uh, they threw two picks. So the red team had none. Um, red team had more rushing success, not a ton of rushing success, but a little bit. Uh, and then was uh, averaged a good amount, like uh, per pass. So that's that's a good sign. Um, I'm guessing the red team had a field position advantage because, uh, you know, aside from the turnovers, they, you know, the, the punts were a little more successful. The blue team did have the one good punt return that might've set up a score. Um, yeah, this one, I'm waiting for a surprise here, but this one, by all accounts, it would suggest that the red team would have won this game more often than not. And like I said, unless the, the drive finishing, that's the one thing you don't get in here, and it would almost be cheating if I got it, I guess, but the drive finishing aspect of this game, unless that was drastically in favor of the blue team, where they created, they probably created fewer opportunities, but if they got like all touchdowns on them, um, then sure. Or maybe they returned the fumble for a touchdown, for all we know. That's the, really the only way the blue team would have won this game. This one seems to have been a, a situation where the red team would have won far more often than not. So you feel like the red team would normally win this game? Correct. Do you feel like if the blue team won, it would be maybe, let's say, ugly or survives, that type of dynamic? Right. They force a bunch of field goals. They return a, a fumble for a touchdown. They do... They. they it, it got uglied up on them, but in, technically with that aspect of it, they still could have won, but I doubt it. Bill, are you ready to find out what game this is? I am ready to find out what game this is. September 21st, 2014. Dateline, Tallahassee, Florida. Number one Florida State seemed destined to lose with its Heisman Trophy winning quarterback Jameis Winston standing on the sideline, suspended and relegated to cheerleader. Sean McGuire hung in with an up-and-down effort as Winston's replacement and Florida State escaped with a 23-17 overtime victory Saturday night over number 22 Clemson. That's right. But every miscue by the backup starter, backup turn starter was a reminder that the face of the program was wearing street clothes and a ball cap. So, you were right at the end. I kind of wanted to guide the plane home because I felt like your line of logic was close. 
So the blue team was Florida State. So you were wrong about picking the red team. However, this <laughs> However, entire game... Clemson should have won that game. This entire game... Exactly. This entire game points to you had the game, you lost the game. The quote-unquote better team survived, which is what I was kind of trying to steer you in on at the end. So to go back and look, the blue team was Florida State, the red team was Clemson. So Clemson... Um, Florida State... Clemson missed two field goals and lost a fumble at the Florida State 14 and turned the ball over on downs in in overtime. Boom. Sean McGuire, 21 of 39 for 305, one touchdown and two interceptions. Deshaun Watson, 19 of 28 for 266 yards. No picks, no no touchdowns. Um, Pretty pretty interesting exercise. Again, numbers are very even. So what we always like to do is test Bill where he really gets to parse to kind of drive down there and find the – find the truth inside of things like I think I was most impressed with was you were talking about field goals at a certain point that the, that was the only way that the red team was going to lose this game and if I remember right in this game that was exactly what happened was that scoring chances were not capitalized upon right Florida State Florida State got inside the 33 times and scored all three times they kicked a field a 49 yard field goal as well Clemson missed a 23-yard field goal, missed a 40-yard field goal, and then when they were trying to kill the clock at the end of regulation they lost, or, and set up the game-winning shot, they fumbled um, with whatever that was, th- like a minute left or something. So, yeah, I mean, that was pretty much – Clemson controlled every aspect of that game, but when it came to put it, creating opportunities and then turning those opportunities into points, they lost the game. Okay, Boom. we have about three minutes left before we jump off the air. Bill did a wonderful job, as always. Continue to send your blind box score bingos to Junior at sbnation.com. Don't CC Bill. We've got a ton. I expect a ton more. I like to kind of to sort through them. Um, you know, we, we, we've really yet to stump the old Schwab here, so just point that out. Up your game. Um, one thing we're going to leave you guys with, uh, Bill and I discussed this before the podcast, but, uh, we've been talking about it for a while. We are in the process of upgrading the podcast. One of those things will include a new logo. Um, I think Bill, when we created the podcast, um, uh, we did, did you pull a file photo? Uh, of something yeah, that's just basically just kinda... a friend's photo that I use for, as my stock football photo for just about everything. I think I used it for my Kickstarter right. too. Yes, so uh, that photo has no particular meaning or relevance. We are in the process of creating an actual logo, like our friends at Solid Verbal, like our friends at Shutdown Fullcast. Um, we need your help with the logo, and here's how. I don't want you to design anything, but I want you to do one thing. And I want you to email Bill and I, and I want you to tell Bill and I the one game that changed your life in college football. It doesn't have to be a win. It doesn't have to be a loss. It doesn't have to be anything. It's, it could be the game that brought you in. It could be the game that reinforced your feelings. It could be the game you hate the most. It could be the game that changed your life the most. We are going to come back next week and talk about the games that did that to us. What we need from you specifically, more than anything else, we welcome, you know, we're all about generating some content here at the old SNBNation.com, especially in these low summer months. We'll read the best responses and the best entries. But what we need is the score. We need as many scores of as many meaningful games from our hardcore listeners, which is which is anyone listening right now at the 80-minute mark, uh, as we are still very much a bootleg operation. When we get all bona fide and fancy and sound really nice and have cool things, we want to kind of honor you guys who stuck with us early on. So I need you to email us. Again, no parameters, no rules. All I need is one game that changed your life in college football, and I need the score. And then when we have enough scores, we'll be able to unveil the new logo. Anything we should add about that, Bill? Well, it pretty much covers it. 
pretty much covers it. All right. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be back next week. Um, and th- I would say especially thank you for making it to 85 minutes. If anybody's okay with 85 minutes in the off season, then we're okay with you. <laughs> See you next week.